We're going to do some more worldview material. Uh, all of this based on what we've studied the last time, which was Paul's address to the pagans in Lystra. Let me read that, and then we'll pray. I'll read the verses from last time, and then we'll get into this worldview material. We were in Acts 14, 16, and 17. And Paul said, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So last time we talked about common grace, which I think is the best way to describe it. Now, yeah, that's not on the today's work. I'm just uh, giving you the context if you weren't here last time. And what I want to do, and I'm so glad Eric's here to help, because we've done a lot of talk over the years about this, is that a lot of people don't understand how God is ruling right now. And as much as we may not be too happy with the various uh, political leaders that come up around the world throughout history, been many, many, many corrupt ones, more so than any other kind. What people don't know is that it's actually merciful that we have national boundaries and human leaders. And that what caused the drawing out, I mean, God's purpose, obviously. But Babel, the, uh, the, the drawing up of the nations was a response to what happened at Babel. And we're going to see today how after the flood, what caused the flood? The, the fallen angels came down to earth and took wives crossing boundaries. We had the Nephilim. We had all these bad things that God wiped out with the flood. So once the flood is over and God reiterates the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth to Noah, the people want to build a tower to reach back up into heaven. Somehow, they had the idea, we need contact with these gods again that God had thwarted. How did that idea get in their head after God had wiped out everybody but Noah and his family? It was still there. They were still thinking about it. And I'll, I'll have some material for you today and I'm going to claim that when God thwarted Babel was to stop that direct interaction with the Elohim. By the, word, by the way, the word Elohim, gods, it's plural, can mean God himself if used in certain contexts, or it can mean lesser beings, even evil ones. Okay? And we can prove that if, if you need it to be proved to you. And so 
when these pagans in Lystra said the gods have come down, this whole thought and process, this whole desire was still going on. This, they're still wanting it thousands of years later. We want the gods to come down. We want contact with the kind of beings that God had destroyed through the flood and stuck into the, the worst ones or stuck into the abyss. They don't get out until Genesis 9, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 9 during the Great Tribulation or during the Tribulation. And this is still in their minds. The pagans have uh, faulty versions, but they have their flood narratives and they have their stories about this. So this is what they're thinking about. And what we're going to try to show you today is that national boundaries with human leaders is God's common grace that actually makes things much less wicked than it will be when he removes that restraint. When the restraint is removed, the rapture happens, they're going to get what they wanted. They're going to get rid of the boundaries and they're going to have some sort of a demiurge. I think Antichrist is something a little more than just an ordinary human. And we're going to have it, what they want. And it's going to be hell on earth. So, let's pray and then we'll get started. Thank you, dear Lord, for giving us the word. And help us understand what you've said so that our minds are clear and we live knowing things that you've chosen to reveal to us and that those things would inform us in how we see the world around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to go back. Having given that introduction, we're going to go back to Genesis and begin to explore how God has decided to rule during the era that we live in between Babel and Antichrist. Chunk, big chunk of history. Yeah, that's right. right? Babel, from Babel to Antichrist. Genesis 11, 4 through 6, I'm citing the ESV here. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Notice that. Don't uh, take that too lightly. They want the top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. That's an important idea. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down, that's Yahweh there, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So, it's very, very significant. Very, very significant. And I did a bunch of research on this, and most of the scholars, I think, rightly believe that what was proposed to be built 
ultimately lesser versions of it showed up. It's called Ziggurat. Okay? So let me cite from Victor Hamilton's New International Commentary in the Old Testament, footnote 11. Quote, It cannot be gainsaid that the inspiration for this story is the Mesopotamian Ziggurat, a temple tower um, from a, from a uh, ancient language which meant to raise up or elevate. Then he says, toward the end of the last century, the discover, discovery of Escalia, the great temple of Marduk in Babylon, suggested this particular edifice as the source behind the biblical narrative. The ziggurat of this temple is called E. Temen Anki, House of the Foundations of Heaven and Earth. So, even today, millennia later, they're finding collaboration of a biblical story. Really, take note of the significance. It wasn't that long ago when they thought they had the Bible debunked in the 19th century. And that modern people, rational people, can't believe Bible stories. These sort of things never happen. We can't believe it. But what one of the, in God's providence, one of the factors that's overthrown that whole idea is archaeology. And some of the interesting political developments that happen, God draws out the boundaries of the nations, is that political stability came to that part of the country, not that stable, but more stable it was, that made it possible for them to be there excavating and they were able to find these things. Yes, Jessica. You know, another interesting note that just confirms all of this is these ziggurats are found all around the world. So they can find, they've, archaeologists have found ziggurats in South America that look the same as the ones that they have found in Mesopotamia. Why? Because they all came from Babel. It's, you, know, yeah. you have to try really hard to ignore that. The, these ancient people didn't all just have the same idea at the same time by coincidence. They were scattered, went somewhere else and tried to do the same thing. Well, see, dear saints, <laughs> that's why we're, we really believe in teaching literal Bible prophecy. The book of Revelation shows they haven't given up yet. They're still trying to make contact with the gods. And the ones they end up contacting besides the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast and so on, actually come back up out of the abyss, the same ones. Read Revelation 9. Okay, so, um, house of the foundations of heaven and earth. Continuing the citation from Hamilton's footnote, rising 300 feet above the ground with two sanctuaries in it, it was believed to have been built by the gods. The back, this background makes the assertion of 11.5, that's our passage here, very interesting. It was built by earthlings. 
And then he gives other places where we can do more study. Here's what Hamilton says on verse 5. It's difficult to miss the irony in this verse, says Dr. Hamilton. The builder's intention is to erect a tower whose top will be, quote, in the heavens. That is, among the gods. But even though they never built the tower, it is so far from the heavens that God must come down to see it. They couldn't do it, so God came down and saw what they were intending. They couldn't do it, so God comes down. They tried to build up, God came down. He judged, brought judgment. And so this is one of those divine inspections. Now, people say, well, that, does that mean God's not omniscient? He, would, he didn't know unless he came and saw? No. <laughs> the, God knows all things. This is so we can understand God's purpose in his moral judgment of things. Okay? And he does come and see this and disapproves of it and then judges it. So, know this. Let's just keep building this biblical worldview. The desire of the human race is to have contact with the gods. And I'll show you as we go along, some of these are fallen beings. And there is a way in which different gods are associated with different nations, but we only have limited knowledge about that. But we'll be looking at that. And that the divine council includes fallen beings. But Yahweh himself is in charge of all things, and determines ultimately what happens. Let's get a biblical worldview. But what God did, instead of allowing this plan to proceed, was he established nations with boundaries and human leaders. And the Bible tells us that God sets up these leaders, even though on the scene of history, political intrigue, revolutions, wars, all different sort of things result in boundaries and leaders. But that's how God's chosen to lead and allow the history to go on. Now, the reason it's important to us in the, our study of the book of Acts is that one particular version of human leadership, the Roman Empire was what made it possible for the gospel to spread throughout that part of the world in a few decades. Wouldn't have been possible. They had a common language. They had a system of transportation. They had a system of law. Paul appealed to, through their system of law, so that he ended up in Rome, albeit in prison. And there was relative stability. It's way better even with a really bad emperor like Nero than having the gods come down. The pagans in Leicester thought the gods came down. And they tore their robe and said no. Uh, anything to add before I go to the next slide? Eric, you want to say anything? You're probably going to get to this. Um, but it's interesting, that phrase, let us make a name for ourselves. Oh, yeah. Shem. Talk about the name. Yeah. Um, 
No, that's good. You know, it's interesting. I was going to point out that when you get to chapter 12, you see that God is going to make a name for Abraham. And so in a sense, you have all of humanity gathering together, not to glorify Yahweh, but to make a name for themselves. Well, in Genesis 12, God starts over, in a sense, with a new humanity. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to make a name for himself, but he's also going to make a great name for Abraham. So Abraham, he's going to be made great because he belongs in covenant with Yahweh. It's all because of God's grace. He's not great because he makes a tower into the heavens. And so it shows you really a contrast between works and grace. Yeah, and it's important to take note that God's plan of salvation that goes forward from the seed of the woman is going to go through Abram. But Abram narrative in Genesis 12 is after the establishment of nations. Okay? So you have the nations and then God choosing Abram from wherever the Chaldees to make a name. So yeah, they're going to make a name. I think the Hebrew is Shem. Is that right? Yeah. Name? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to chapter... Yes. Can you comment on the last sentence there? Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Yes. Uh, frankly, occultists have taken that and actually false teachers in Christendom have taken that and told people that that teaches the power of unity and the power of words and so on. And so that if we want to do the impossible, we've got to get total unity and all speak the same word and we'll have this kind of power. I've heard Christian teachers claiming that was a good thing. But what they wanted to do was to make contact with the gods. I believe that's clear from what we learned in Genesis 6 and what follows. I wouldn't, we're only guessing about what would have happened had God not come down and stopped it. But I think that passage is there, and Eric, you can comment on this, or maybe somebody else has studied this. I think. It's thwarted. They're not going to do what they want to do. It doesn't mean they're going to become people with the essential attributes of deity. The only being in the universe for which nothing is literally impossible, other than lying or doing evil, is God. So I think the implication would be this is a bad plan for further contact with the gods. Because that's what was just judged in Noah in, in, in the Noahic flood, and we don't want this to start all over again. Yeah, and Bob is rightly calling them gods. Um, just to get our heads around the language that's used, you and I refer to the angelic beings as angels or demons, but in Hebrew, they're called the Elohim often, as Bob mentioned. Right. So Elohim, yeah. the em ending is the plural. And so, for example, Bob's going to be showing a passage from Deuteronomy 32 where it talks about the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. And so this is the way that they refer to this divine counsel, what you and I would refer to as angels. But that's the language that they used. So sometimes God, Yahweh, 
is referred to as Elohim. The plural ending is used for him because he is the Lord over that divine council. But just get your, your minds around the fact that the Israelites were not polytheists. See, this bothers a lot of Christians because they see this language being used, Hebrew, to talk about God being over the other gods. And they think, wait a minute, are these Israelites pluralistic in their understanding of God's? No. No. What they understand is that Yahweh is the leader over the divine council. But they use that term, the Elohim, the other gods, to refer to the angels. That's what they use. So right. That's and we'll see some of that in some verses we're going to study. Exactly. Um, Ryan, to your question, in my mind, you can judge whether this is proper or not. In my mind, when I'm thinking about what they propose to do, nothing they propose to do will be impossible. I'm thinking ahead to the tribulation period when they actually get what they want. That's right. Okay? So if you want to know what that would look like, read in Revelation about what it is like when they finally get it. Remember, the thing that's stopping it was God thwarting them by confusing their languages, establishing nations, and then choosing Abram, who becomes Abraham. So God's plan is what actually happens. But it's pretty clear that they never actually give up. The whole human race hasn't given up. And if you look at occultism today, I just finished the rough draft of an article yesterday, and I'm dealing with this, the spirituality of this enneagram, where their solitude, silence, is stillness. They're still trying to figure out how to make contact with the world of the spirits. They're separated from it to a certain degree, but they want it back. Yes. I in uh, Genesis eleven six, where it says, "The Lord said, Behold." They are one people, and they will have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Is it also true that there's another application for that, and that if if he had not confused the language, things would have progressed too fast, and... Uh, they would have been able to advance, uh, you know, scientifically and all kinds of other ways. And like we see today now, language doesn't seem to be much of a barrier anymore. And with the Internet and everything we see, we see things just exploding and people okay. are out to do all about anything they want to do. And I don't think, did he want that to happen too, not back Too then? quickly? Well, I would, I, I'm not sure about the scientific aspect of it. I think it's focused on the spiritual aspect of contact with the Elohim. That's what I think. And if you look back at the desires of the pagan uh, religions of the Mesopotamian area and some of the material they have, um, they realize that these Beings that had come down in the time of Noah and the offspring, Nephilim, were way, way beyond just ordinary humans. And that they had knowledge 
that humans would never be able to get on their own. So the desire norm, certainly there's scientific application, but science isn't forbidden if, it, if it's not used for a, a wicked purpose. Okay, So we're allowed to learn how to till and keep the ground. And if science helps us do a better job of it, that's not forbidden. We're allowed to transport ourselves. Science helps us. That's not forbidden. Being able to translate languages across the world certainly helps science develop, but it's not forbidden that we have better, better nutrition or better ways of managing the, the world that we live in. But what is forbidden is occult knowledge, the secret things that belong to God. And that's what they were going to get. So the various um, human governments with uh, different nations with national boundaries, I don't know how much it slowed down science, but it surely slowed down the, their occult intentions. Okay, Because these, remember, if you go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what were they going to gain? Adam already had the authority to name the animals. That shows his power over the animals and superior uh, nature to them. They already had the entire Garden of Eden where they could eat the fruit as they pleased and would not be harmful. What did the tree of the knowledge of good and evil offer that they didn't already have? Yeah, the knowledge of evil that the serpent was offering. There is this occult desire that drives the human race. This, this occult is just fueled and energized by the desire of contact to the spirit world because even the occultists realize there's something there we don't have in our ordinary state of consciousness. It's not that they want the garden to grow more fruit. They want to contact the gods. Um, we, we interviewed somebody who just got delivered out of that. Jessica talked to her on the phone. And actually, as I was talking with her, one thing that we discussed for a bit, um, so Amy and I, we grew up in Twin City Fellowship. She was a few years older than me, but we went to the same church. We sat under the t- same teaching, and we both went off and um, tried to leave the faith, and God wouldn't let us. <laughs> but So one thing that we came up with is we grew up and we realized that looking back now, we had this idea in our head that the false gods were just made up. Like the Greeks worshipped Zeus, but Zeus was really nothing. Zeus was just something that they made up so they could have something to, wor- to worship. And when we're talking about the divine council here, when we're talking about these Elohim, we're talking about real demons. Zeus oh, wasn't yeah. nothing. Zeus was a demon. Marduk wasn't nothing. Marduk was a demon. They are real gods, yeah. little G, and that's who they were trying to contact. And then when you, if you um, come forward then to the New Testament, Paul says what the pagans sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons. Amen. So we're not talking about Im- imaginary false gods. We're talking about real occult contact with demons. And so... Part of this was thwarting this contact with demons. Right. And the demons have 
power and knowledge and limited authority that we don't have. And so trying to tap into that just leads to what we see in Revelation, unrestrained wickedness. Exactly. What was was the serpent saying? You'll be like God, knowing that you're going to gain knowledge. God's keeping you for something that you don't have. And it wasn't better way to grow apples. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just kind of dovetail on what Jessica said, too. There was a time when I just thought, oh, those other gods aren't real. There's only one real God, and I, the, the, everything else is just imaginary. I don't need to worry about them. <laughs> Come to learn differently now that they are, they are real beings. I've got a note here in my study Bible, my home and study Bible, about this comment that Ryan asked about here. And I think it's helpful to the conversation. Uh, 11.6, it says, God's concern that nothing the people might plan to do would be impossible for them does not express a, desi- a divine fear that humans might someday become as powerful as God. Rather Rather, it conveys dismay that the people unchecked would undertake extraordinary deeds of evil and defiance. Right, and like the Garden of Eden. They're, yeah, they're already being, you know, they're, they're in one place. That they haven't been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. You know, they're, they're stuck there in Babel, or they want to stay there in Bible, Babel, so they're yeah. being defiant that way. And as, as you said, we've kind of beaten this to death that, you know, they, they uh, want contact with, with, with demons. Right. That's, know, that's the know. whole point. So. They didn't want to do what God said and go fill the earth. Right. They'd rather go up to heaven. So they didn't want to stay in the domain God put them in. Yes. So that's all what we're talking about is really the great apostasy. The the contact of the, of the spirits, the apostasy, breaking down in, in the, Thessalonians, breaking in Revelation. Great yeah, apostasy. but Thessalonians talks about the great yeah. apostasy. Go ahead, Eric, comment on that. And we'll we'll come to this passage later. Um, but in Second Thessalonians two, Paul talks about the restrainer, and he says to those at Thessalonica, he says, "You know now that which restrains." And what's interesting is he Antichrist, he, yeah. Well, yeah. restrains the Antichrist coming. Exactly. And what's very interesting about that term restrainer is if Paul had intended to talk about the Holy Spirit, why didn't he just talk about the Holy Spirit? So what makes far more sense is what was the restrainer in Paul's mind was government. And the reason he didn't want to overtly say government is because he'd be accused and all Christians would have sedition. Because remember, the Romans already saw Christianity as a threat against the state. So it explains then why opaquely Paul is using the restrainer and not saying if the restrainer was the Holy Spirit, he'd just say, you know what restrains, the Holy Spirit does. But the point is that Bob is making is it's government. God places government as a restraint, multiple governments, multiple boundaries. But at the end, that restraint is going to be taken away and people will be given exactly what they wanted at Babel. They're going to be given that in in the tribulation period. Yeah, that's exactly right. That makes so much sense. I struggled with that for decades, trying to understand Thessalonians. And then this whole divine council worldview um, became, came to light as far as just some good scholarly study. And it all began to make sense. And that's why it doesn't make sense to be a millennial and say none of this is ever going to happen. Then it's, you're, you're going back so you don't understand. Right. Okay? And that doesn't mean all human leaders are somehow benevolent and good. 
get this right. Even the worst tyrants, as bad as they are, are not as bad as being under Antichrist. And you only come to that conclusion if you read Revelation literally. Yes. And the throwing off of uh, national sovereignties is the great apostasy. Yeah, they're, well, they're fighting against it. Yeah, they, the human race wants to get back to where they were here, and God won't let them. Get that in your mind. That's a biblical worldview. God has established the nations. Acts 17, God draws out the boundaries. It's a biblical worldview. This gives us the doctrine of providence. Boundaries are drawn by wars, political intrigue. All sorts of things happen that end up with boundaries. But it's part of providence. But in the end, that there are boundaries is God's sovereign will. Now, isn't it interesting in 2019, right here, right now, in American politics, the big debate is erasing the borders? Yeah, because they have an antichrist desire. We'll all be one. This, if anything, this tells me the Bible has to be inspired by God. Who could have made this all so coherent? All right, let's get to another slide. I, I got to do at least two slides. <laughs> one time, I, lately, I just did one. Now, notice this. Here's this divine counsel terminology. Genesis 11, 7 through 9. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord, now here we have Yahweh, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, that they would cover the face of the earth was revealed to Noah that that's what should happen, that the earth would be populated, that humans would not only cover the earth, but multiply on the earth. Dear ones, we've got to keep building a biblical worldview because the pagans are telling us that humans on the earth are bad. They're telling us boundaries are bad. Human beings are bad. When I did some research on this in the 80s, I studied a movement and in the 90s called Deep Ecology. You ever heard of that? There were radicals literally proposing that all the humans need to die uh, so that there's, except for about 200,000, which is probably the most extreme version. Some say a few million. In other words, humans should just be able to interact with the beasts and not have any advantage over any of the beasts. So it's rejecting everything we know about a biblical worldview, from Adam having dominion, naming the animals, from tilling and keeping the ground. I have a sermon coming up I don't know when, I've got three written that I haven't preached yet, where we're going to look at a biblical worldview in regard to work. And 
cultivating before and after the fall and so on. But a biblical worldview says it's good for humans to multiply on the earth. The pagans think that it's evil. We've got to get rid of humans or have way less of them or stop them. And the more pagan the nation is, the more human life means nothing. Abortions. Yep, abortion. How about communist China? How about communist USSR under Stalin? Millions upon millions of people die because they see humans as a problem to be eliminated. Southeast Asia under Pol Pot and so on. Millions die. We reject a biblical worldview to our own peril. And at the very least, the Christian church should have a biblical worldview. And I don't know how they're going to get it unless the pastors start preaching the word of God clearly enough so people can learn and know. It's good that there's humans. It's good that there's boundaries. It's good that we multiply on the earth. It's good that we raise food. It's good that we use our intellect to figure out better ways to raise food. It's not God's intent that we would be hunters and gatherers uh, because that's the way it ought to be. It's not what we see in Genesis. Even before the fall, there's there's a lament. I'm going to preach on this. It says there was no man to cultivate the earth. That wasn't portrayed as a good thing. Even before the fall, Adam was to tell and keep the earth so that the earth would be fruitful and multiply. And so, therefore, we need a biblical worldview. So, God, notice, let us. Here's a divine counsel uh, term. Let us. There's the plural. That's the divine counsel. But ultimately, it's Yahweh, the one true God, who's over it all, who does the action. So, notice, he thwarts their plan. So, we have a divine counsel meeting. The determination is... Yahweh deals with it, who is in charge completely. Let's go on. Three slides. Oh, wait, I'm almost sorry. three slides. Go I'm ahead, Eric. No, I want to hear you. I, <laughs> I don't mean to slow you down. You're doing so good. Um, very interesting. I've always thought, here you have the confusion of the language by Yahweh. What's very interesting, at Pentecost, you have people who come from different nations, and yet they can understand one another. So again, in some sense you see this reversal of Babel in that by works, they all were trying to have one speech, one language. God thwarts it at Babel, but at Pentecost, he enables them from different languages to finally understand one another again, but it's by his spirit. It's by his grace. The other thing is that term Babel, Babel in Hebrew, what's very interesting is that's going to be used throughout the rest of Scripture to refer to Babylon. And so what's shocking is when you read Babylon in your English Bible, that's Babel. And what God is doing is he's linking the desire to build a nation, Babylon, that thwarts God's kingdom. And so that's what Babylon is literal, but it's also symbolic. So when you get to Isaiah 13, what God does is a near and a far. 
the near term, God is going to show that he's good for the far term to one day throw down Babylon. And to prove it, he throws down the Babylon in his day at the hands of the Assyrians. Or, I'm sorry, the Medo-Persians. But one day, Babel is going to be literally rebuilt again. But realize that term Babel is used all the way through the Bible yep. to refer to Babylon. That's how significant this right. event that Bob is pointing us to is. Right. And so the restraining is stopping that from going on. So there's two sorts of unity to Diane here. There's two sorts of unity. The unity that man wants under Babel and the unity that God intends through Messiah. Then that one starts up with Abram in Genesis 12. Genesis 11 is where the scatter. Genesis 12, Abram. And then we get to the New Testament. You have one new man in Christ. And we have the unity God intends through faith in Christ, Noah, so on. Yes. This is just an interesting side note. Um, man is still trying to thwart God's plan. A couple years ago, remember on TV, all the advertisements for the program called Babel, where you could go on and you could learn any language that's out there. So it's still out there. You can go on your computer and download Babel and learn any language you want to. So it shows that man is still trying to thwart God's plan. That's true. Thank you. It's never changed. I saw that too. Yeah, interesting what they called it, Babel. (laughs) Now, the, the thing is, the restraint is taken away at some future date. But we don't know that, and we don't know how long the church age is going to go on. And people have been wrong by speculating. I don't, I, I distinctly remember in the 80s when they started forming the European Union, there were people, the mic goes to the back, uh, thought, well, this is it. Now we're going to have Antichrist. They were going to be 10 to 8. At some point, they were adding nations. They were going to be part of the universe. They got up to 10. Oh, there it is. Babylon right now here in Europe. I remember seeing it. I thought, yeah, how do they? I don't think they know that. Well, now what's happening? Well, the opposite impulse is going on. The redrawing of boundaries and nationalism. This is just kind of history going on until... The restrainers remove them. That, I don't think it happens until the time of the rapture. So don't think you know the near future uh, as well as you probably do not. We don't. We get we get it wrong. If somebody says, "I know what's going to happen," you must do this. Probably the best thing would be to do the opposite. <laughs> Remember in October 2015. Not only this this one guy I wrote about claiming everything's going to crash because God's going to judge America. There were other things where they're saying all this alignment's happening and all the bad's going to happen. Get your money out of the stock market. Well, if you would have put all your money in the stock market in October 2015 when they told you to take it out of the stock market, the Christian profits, you would have made a lot of money. What do we learn? We don't know the future. We think we do, but we don't, other than what will happen, and that hasn't happened yet. 
Yes. Part of the new Green Deal that they're talking about is um, not eating animals and so forth and all of that. Well, you know what? The world is so pagan. What we need to do is restrain things by attacking on a worldview level false ideas and not allowing them into the church and allowing the scripture to determine well, what we what's true and good and right and allowed and not allowed. Okay? And don't don't worry about all the stuff that people are saying. Don't worry. Believe the promises of God and stay within the realm of what's valid Christian liberty and what isn't. Don't let the sensationalists on the radio tell you where to put your money or not put your money. That's between you and your family. If you have an idea of what you would like to do so that something happens, your descendants will have something or the house is paid for. Make your decisions with the best wisdom you have because these Christian prophets don't know anything that isn't accessible by ordinary means of knowing. And if anything, just assume they're wrong. That's what I do. I assume they're wrong. The people claim to know the future. Why? Because I've been around long enough to see them be wrong. Again, 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 again. In the 1970s, they said, because of computer technology, we're going to have the paperless office. I heard it. And I thought that was in the 70s. I was working on some of the very earliest computers making charge cards when they were a new thing. When I was a Bible college student, somebody said, well, when they first announced the paperless office, had you gone out and bought stock in every paper mill, you would have got rich. Because what happened was the computers made it easier to print on paper anytime you want. More paper. <laughs> no extra charge. You heard it from me. <laughs> Nobody knows the future. Don't believe them. Clear in the back. Well, I also heard in the 70s from a prophetess that Florida was going to go underwater and she happened to have some land on high ground. You could be part of her deal in Florida. That was the 70s. Well, an awful lot of building happens in the 70s in Florida that's not on high ground. In the 70s, they were also declaring that they were going to have an ice age, too. Yeah, we were going to have a new ice age. I remember that one. The crisis. The, yeah, we're going, to run out of, we're going to run out of all oil by the year 2000. Right. Now we've got more oil than we ever had. Don't believe them! Okay, go ahead. I can't find the verse I... I'm looking for right now, I think it's an axe, but sometimes, um, you know, modern day prophets happen to be right, but the difference is they're not right every time, and that's the true test, because think of, um, and again, I can't find it, but where that man um, owned that, um, you know, girl that could foretell the future. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She said, you know, oh, these men are, you know, of the Prophets of the Most High God. she was right, but... You know, from a falsy source. Right, yeah. exactly. Well, I, when I wrote an article 
rebuking the guy who claimed to know what was going to happen in October 2015. I wrote the article in June of that year. I pointed out that a prophet who's sometimes right is an absolute worthless prophet. <laughs> so the prophet says, the stocks may or may not crash in October. Okay, so I read his, what he said. Or the you know, economy, he, the whole economy is going to crash. I said, okay, before I read this guy's book, I knew that the stocks may or may not crash in October. After I read it, I know the stocks may or may not crash in October. What did I gain? <laughs> you don't find out until afterwards, which you wouldn't have anyhow. <laughs> Unless they're 100% accurate, they're false. If they're predicting the future. Okay. Let me, let's, I got to go to another slide. <laughs> Ten minutes for a slide here. Oh, yeah, we got to get to the basic worldview verse. Here's a whole ver- worldview in a, laid out in one verse. So, and a lot of times it's obscured by poor translations uh, or manuscript things we'll talk, we can talk about. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. But when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. Stop right there. When did it happen in Genesis? What chapter? 11, right? Was it chapter 11? Where he divided mankind at Babel? Genesis 11. Right? Genesis 11? Okay, let's go on. He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, there's a reason why I stopped at the end of mankind and pointed out when that happened. There is a Masoretic text reading that says according to the sons of Israel. Okay? What's the problem with that? Well, the sons of Israel didn't exist. Abram didn't even come on the scene until Genesis 12. The sons of God were already already the issue. At Babel, they wanted to reach up to the sons of God, the divine council. Wanted them to directly interact. God ordained human rulers. And so, let's, let's go on here. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. So, what happens is, Rather than the sons of God directly interacting with humans and ruling on earth, they're kept from the humans in the heavens, and instead there's national boundaries and human rulers. But Israel is the Lord's portion. So God's direct action in history is going to be primarily through Israel. Abram, the seed of the woman, the, you know, Noah, Abram, later we go on, Moses comes on the scene, and Judah, and so on. David, on to the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. And then Messiah comes. And Israel... It's the center of God's direct dealings. He deals with prophets through Israel. 
the nations have human rulers, the sons of God stay in the heavens. But they do influence the human rulers. Now, boy, I'm going to have to jump ahead. Okay, let, let me uh, give you a few uh, uh, things here, just because some people will wonder about how we're doing this. So I, I point out the timing. The sons of God are about the divine counsel. Uh, one person who I met out in uh, Escondida, California, at a think tank, Dr. Heiser, has written a popular book about this. I don't agree with all of his theology, but he, he's pretty well known for getting this idea out in front of people so they can understand it. Here's what he says. Quote, frankly, you don't need to know all the technical reasons for why the sons of God reading in Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 is what the verse originally said. You just need to think a bit about the wrong reading, the sons of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 hark, harks back to the events at the Tower of Babel, an event that occurred before the call of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. This means that the nations of the earth were divided at Babel before Israel even existed as a people. It would make no sense for God to divide up the nations of the earth according to the numbers of the sons of Israel if there was no Israel. This point is also brought home in another way, namely the fact that Israel is not listed in the table of nations. All right? There's a uniqueness to Israel. Now, by the way, there are other ancient texts, including Dead Sea Scrolls, that have the sons of God reading. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls version is far older than the Masoretic text. Whatever version the people who translated the Hebrew into Greek had in Alexandria, several hundred years before Christ, had a different reading. So now, some of the major translations, like the ESV, don't have sons of Israel, but sons of God. Eric, comment, please. Yeah, I'm just sorry. Real quick, there may be an explanation as to why some scholar changed it. There'd be some motivation to try to think of a scholar thinking that Yahweh divided mankind according to this demonic realm. Well, yeah, they don't like the idea. They don't like the idea, <laughs> yeah, so right. they change it instead. Well, God must have done it according to the sons of Israel. There was motivation, but Bob is exactly right. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the Masoretic text that we have now, show that this is, in fact, the better reading. It's the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, not according to the sons of Israel. Yeah, I think LXX or 70 has the angels of God or something like that. But it's the same basic idea. Let me, now notice, I, I just take note of Romans 13. The governing authorities are from God. That's the nations, the boundaries, human authorities. So God ordained human rulers. Now, let me give a couple more. Let's preview for a few weeks from now. Here's the host of heaven. Here, let me, I'm going to go forward here. You probably have this on your outline. Quickly, let's jump forward to Daniel 10. And let's see, see, most of the time, we, this is all just going on, but we don't see it. Every once in a while, God pulls back the curtain about things that otherwise would be the secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that we wouldn't know. 
And in a few places in Scripture, he pulls back the curtain, and we get to see behind the scenes what's going on so that we know what's like that. But the details of it are not for us to know right now. But here is an incident where, for the prophet Daniel, God pulls back the curtain, and he gets to see something behind the scenes. Let me read it. Daniel 10, 12-13. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And this is an angel that tells him that, a good angel. And I have come because of your words. I have highlighted in red, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So now we know when the curtain is pulled back that the, that the sons of God, about which it says were the allotment uh, of uh, the different geographical boundary areas of the earth, they're behind the scenes. On the scene is the actual king, like Nebuchadnezzar here, or the king of Persia, or whoever. There are demons in the heavenlies. They actually exist. But they're behind the scenes. Here's what you need to know. And I know you need to know this because I get dozens, dozens, yay, thousands of emails since the 1990s from people who have a pagan worldview. The pagans think that because God let us know us like this, therefore it's our duty to go up into heavens and rebuke the kings, the, the prince of Persia. They think that we need to find out which one's over what. I actually got an email this last week from a guy who sent me a link where these false teachers have a spiritual yellow pages of demons. And you can go find out in their yellow pages which one's which so you can fight them. Now, we'll, we'll deal with that. Jude tells us not to do that. Now, listen. That's sin. Here's why it's sin. God uses human leaders. That's what we know. You've got a problem with the human leader. Send a letter to the human leader and say, I don't like what you're doing. Or go vote for somebody else. Or do whatever you want to do. Humans can deal with humans. It's not forbidden. But if you think you know which demon is over America, or Mexico, or Canada, you don't. And even if you did, now these people claim they know because they were got a revelation from God, which is occult. God hasn't chose to reveal that secret thing. Then they're going to go rebuke it and get it so they can get better leaders. What they're doing is an affront to Yahweh. God's in charge of his own divine counsel. He's in charge of it. We're going to see that in a few weeks when I'm teaching Sunday school again. We're going to look in Kings where God reveals where there's actually a council meeting. We get to find out what they do. Okay. <laughs> there are Job. Yeah, Job 1. So God's in charge of that. Are you going to say, God, step aside. I'm going to take charge of this council meeting. You wouldn't do that with the mayor of St. Louis Park. Or you wouldn't go down to St. Paul and say, step aside whoever's 
the governor or the speaker of the house or whatever. I'm going to sit here and do it. How much less should you do it with the spirit realm when you don't even know what's going on? So you have the sons of God, you have Yahweh in charge, sons of God, human rulers. That realm is God's to deal with, not ours. We deal down here in this realm. The central part of the whole thing is Israel and her Messiah. Because through Abraham, the seed of Abraham, there's a way out where though we're still living in the world, we're not of it. And we come under the direct rulership of Yahweh by faith in Christ. So that at the very end, when God reverses all of this, we'll go to be with him, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the world gets what they want, which is Antichrist. So I'm doing the best I can to help us have a biblical worldview. In a few weeks, we'll go back and we'll go through more data about what this looks like. So that when, why am I doing all this in Acts? Because in Acts, the number of times this comes right to the forefront, the gods have come down, they said. The gods have come down. There's interaction with human rulers. There's interaction with demons. We'll talk about all that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness and mercy. And may we learn what you've chosen to reveal in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.